Tugalati, welcome. This is the start of what we hope will be a series of conversations among friends about contract law. But in particular, Mark Weidemeyer, my dear friend and colleague at the University of North Carolina, and I are going to be talking about a set of sovereign debt clauses and controversies. So given that, we've decided to call our series Clauses and Controversies. So first, a little bit of background about the idea for this. And Mark will jump in since he's here. I will. And Hello, me too. <laughs> Hi, Mark. And he will jump in and correct me, as he often does when I assert wrong things. But I also want to introduce you all to Liana, who is our producer slash showrunner. Liana is the only one of the three of us who is technologically capable, and we are depending on her to work her magic in terms of making our incoherent babble coherent. So thank you, Liana. Which is thank a tall you, order, Mark. but yes. <laughs> it, it is going to be a tall order, but she is familiar with it and has worked magic in the past. Now, part of the idea for this series comes from the situation that we're facing now with COVID and having to teach on Zoom. So Mark and I are both having to teach our first year contracts class on Zoom, which uh, at first to me was quite dismaying. But as we thought about the fact that we were both going to be teaching online classes, it occurred to us that we could do kind of a fun collaboration where we might be able to do something more creative and more fun than at least I've ever been able to do. And let me articulate my view of it and then turn it over to Mark for his view of this. The traditional contract law class, as I've often taught, taught it, uh, goes through a semester of appellate cases. And what this means is that there, these are disputes from a variety of settings, sort of randomly put together because they make certain important legal points. And the discussion in class is about these cases making very basic points about issues like offer and acceptance, consideration, uh, expectation damages. But in a class about contracts, there is rarely, if ever, any discussion of actual contracts. In fact, sometimes students, in my class at least, never see a contract. So they study contract law without seeing a contract. That has always been frustrating, but I've always taken solace in the fact that this is the way everybody else does it. Of course, I never bothered to check with anybody. So the idea was maybe this time we take a single type of contract and use that type of contract all through the semester to give students a sense of what an overall contract looks like, but also an overall industry. So that, 
that's sort of my basic idea. And if you pick a fun enough topic, which I think we will, it can be really fun. Uh, so fun enough topic can be really fun. Now, I'll turn it over to Mark since I've talked too long and promise not to do that in the future, but let's see whether his conception is radically different or not. It's not radically different. That's basically how I see the benefits of, of doing this. I mean, for my part, I have always, well, maybe not always, but for a long time now, I've tried to incorporate real contracts and more than just appellate cases into my, my first year contracts class. Um, and, you know, over time, I've started using one contract that we re revisit over the course of the semester and do problems based off of. And the, the benefit of that, hopefully, is they, you know, they get familiarity with the contract itself and a little bit with the transactional context. And they spend a lot of time reading its provisions. So they're, you know, when they think about interpretation problems, they can do it in a way that's a little more grounded in reality. So and all of that. You know, I think probably there are there are lots of other people. I know other people who who teach in similar ways. The thing that's frustrating to me, though, and the reason I'm excited about this series, is that it's really hard to do more than just introduce them to a contract as a legal tool, and it's kind of separated from the economic and political context that the parties are operating in and that the contract is going to be enforced in. And here, these contracts are almost nothing but economic and political context with some nice law sort of thrown on top as a, you know, as a, a bit of a frosting. Um, so that's, I think that's the exciting part is the, the significance of politics and economics is obvious to these contracts and they really ground the legal issues in that broader context i think that's quite quite exciting so that that that's um so bottom line in terms of what mark said was he already does this i think <laughs> uh, he just never told me that he was already doing it and so i'm very upset because i always thought we did the same thing uh, but Let's put that nice, aside. But yes. let, let, let's put that aside that you have betrayed me already for many, many years. Uh, and I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the particular types of contracts that we're going to, to use uh, as our foil and the justification for doing that and why I think this might be particularly exciting. And anything exciting during these dark days is, is, is a big positive for me. So Mark and I work on a variety of topics, many of them quite different. But there's one topic that we have worked on together over the years, but a topic that we come at from what I see as very different perspectives, which is what has always made it great fun for me to work with Mark. And the difference in perspectives as I see it is that I grew up as a transactional lawyer, which means that I mostly uh, photocopied documents uh, or cut and paste them, uh, changed a few words around, and that was what I understood law to be. And that's what I understood contract law to be. I never read any cases when I was in practice. 
never really read any law review articles or law commentaries or uh, thought about the economics or the politics of the real world circumstances. That was all uh, for the litigators to deal with when they actually hit disputes. And I, I think that was the, the lack of context of the deals that I was working on was especially frustrating. And it may have been my own fault for not seeing the bigger picture, but I always looked across to the litigators who actually fought these cases and thought, yeah, they're having all the fun because they have to understand context. They have to read cases and they have to understand what's actually going on. And so working with Mark on sovereign debt disputes where countries are trying to wiggle out of paying their creditors or creditors are trying to force countries to pay in the midst of situations like the COVID crisis, which are existential crises for some of these countries, can be exciting and meaningful and hopefully also educational. That's the basics of what I think we're going to do over the semester is look at particular contract clauses and the controversies they're engendering. And we're going to try and connect them to real world crises that are ongoing today as a result of this pandemic that has turned our world upside down. And I'm going to try to bring the perspective of copy and paste production uh, and Hopefully, Mark will bring the intellectual heft to this, as he always does in our work. As, as your friends and colleagues know well, me too, you're, you are, to this day, extremely proficient at photocopying. It is, it's one of your superpowers. <laughs> um, I mean, so the, what you say is right, at least, certainly in terms of our differing perspectives. I, I have to say, you had some practice experience relevant to this field. I did not. I had no connection to not just sovereign debt, but suing sovereigns in my practice experience. But the thing that kind of blew me away when I started looking at sovereign debt contracts, these sovereign bonds in particular, is, you know, my perception was always like, well, look, you're suing a country. And yes, technically you can do that, depending on sovereign immunity and so forth. But it's, you know, it's an extraordinary long shot in many respects. And so you're, you're operating in the world where law should be least relevant in some way. So it's a country, you're relying on it to keep its word because, you know, it probably will, but you're not really dependent on your legal rights. And yet these contracts were so long, so detailed, so heavily lawyered, or at least they seemed that way to me from my perspective at the time, that there was a nice little puzzle, right? Why are people investing all this time and energy in producing these incredibly long, complicated contracts in this world where law supposedly does so little? And I think part of what we're going to talk about over the course of these sessions is whether these contracts really wind up looking like those carefully crafted legal tools after all, or whether maybe there are some, some flaws in the production process sometimes. To add to Mark's comments on how we're going to 
combine our perspectives, I want to give a little bit of additional flavor regarding what we hope will be adding to the traditional law school model of teaching contracts, or at least my traditional law school model of contracts, since as has already been established, Mark has been doing something weird for years over there in Chapel Hill. So, but over here in Durham, where we follow the traditional model from Christopher Columbus Langdell, <laughs> uh, we <laughs> um, teach these appellate cases and generally there is no sense of the history or politics or economics of the transactions. Contract law is generally taught without any connection to the backgrounds of what's going on in the disputes. And once you actually start practicing law or even studying disputes as they occur in the real world, you begin to realize, I submit, that that is a completely ridiculous way of teaching a dispute because a dispute is rarely a function of purely the contract clause and you cannot actually understand the contract dispute and the contract clause just by reading four or five pages ex excerpted from a judicial opinion that is already very, very far removed from the realities of what happened. Now, realities of what happens in most disputes are not that exciting. So one has to find uh, a setting where they are going to be relentlessly exciting. It might and, seem that way from the photocopier, but sometimes <laughs> they can be quite thrilling. <laughs> it's true. But, um, and again, that, that Mark's snide comments over there do emphasize the, the sort of litigator's perspective, I think, because the litigators see the real world emotions uh, and implications and incentives of the parties that are often driving the outcome, whereas the transactional lawyer or the law professor is just oblivious often to what's going on. And then I think sometimes draws very wrong conclusions about what's happening in the world and that, that can be misleading in bad ways. Now, we picked the area of sovereign debt contracts in part because that is an area that we both study and we work on together, in part also because it is incredibly important today as we are going through this crisis that has the potential and indeed already has to topple 20 to 30 countries in terms of their financial stability within the next six to eight months. So we'll be talking about very current disputes and to the extent we talk about history, will be how that history is relevant to thinking about contemporary context. But also because in some ways, these are really simple contracts and I love simplicity. Somebody lends money, they lend money to a country, the country goes into crisis, either because it screwed up its economy or because something bad happened from outside, like coronavirus, and the country can't pay back the money. 
and so wants to be able to get either time or an agreement that it has to pay less. So that's the contract is, I lend you money, you promise to pay it back. And the context is, I can't pay it back. I'm the country. And that's what we're going to study. But of course, these are matters of life and death. When you're talking about a country that needs to be able to take scarce resources and use those scarce resources to help its healthcare system instead of paying some hedge fund in Greenwich, Connecticut. So it should be fun and exciting because questions of morality, politics, and ethics, and economics all get wrapped up. And at its core, it's quite simple. Mark? I agree. It's quite simple. I mean, as you know, some of the things um, that can add complication have to do with the fact that a country is in some ways, from the perspective of an outsider, just a big black box. It has, in theory, sort of infinite capacity to pay you, at least given enough time. And obviously, that depends on how it's got to pay you and in what kind of currency and things like that. But it can tax people. It lives forever. And you know, how do you really trust it when it says, we can't keep our commitments to you now, we need you to take less, or we need you to give us more time. And one of the sort of interesting things that makes the present crisis a little bit simpler uh, and a little bit easier to focus on the contracts themselves and on the need for using these contracts to figure out a way to deal with the economic crisis that the the virus is producing, is everybody kind of understands that there's a problem. Everybody understands that countries are hurting, that their economies are in shambles. There will be uncertainty about how long that's going to last, how quickly a country is going to recover. But we're really now in a position where it's just a question of who's going to bear the losses here. Creditors don't want to bear more than their fair share. Ideally, their fair share would be zero from their, many of their perspectives. Um, and, you know, the contracts are the, the focal point on which that battle gets fought out. But, of course, the, the context is much broader than that. So, welcome back. We're now going to start on the very first clause in our Clauses and Controversies series. And this is the very first clause that I usually ask my students about. I generally start my contracts class by asking my students about a recent contract that they have signed. And if they've come from out of town, generally they've signed a lease. So I ask them, what's the governing law for your lease? And typically, they have paid no attention to whether or not the governing law is that of California or North Carolina or Idaho. And so that is wonderful. Every once in a while, I do get a student who has paid attention, and that's terrible. Uh, but so long as they don't know, it allows us to get into a discussion of what the governing law clause means and what does it mean to choose the law of North Carolina versus the law of New York versus the law of Mongolia for purposes of your contract dispute. 
Now, never really thought this to be particularly important or exciting until Venezuela's debt crisis that blew up some years ago. But this governing law question came to the fore quite recently in a dispute that is referred to as the PDVSA 2020 dispute. And so given that Mark is literally the world's leading expert on the implications of this dispute and what has been going on, I'm going to ask him to explain to us the relationship between Venezuela's crisis, the PDVSA 2020 bonds and the dispute, and the governing law clause. Okay, tall order. Um, so the, this is an example of how a kind of technical legal question can have a really extraordinarily important context and set of consequences. So it's 2016, you have a, by most accounts, a corrupt authoritarian regime in Venezuela that's presiding over an absolute domestic humanitarian disaster desperately needs dollars, but for some reason, although it should be taking those dollars and solving the humanitarian crisis, it keeps on paying all of the people who have lent it money, all the foreigners who have lent it money. And it, it's so insistent on paying them that in 2016, this big PDVSA bond, PDVSA is the state oil company. It is the most important company in the entire country, bar none. It doesn't have enough money to pay this bond as it comes due. Rather than do the sensible thing and just not pay it, use the money to feed people and so forth, the government buys some time. It goes to the people who hold these bonds issued by PDVSA and it says, give us four more years. Give us your bonds, we'll give you these new ones, just give us four more years and to sweeten the deal, if we don't pay you, you can seize our most important asset in the United States, which is Sitco Petroleum, the oil refiner. You can seize ownership of that. So there's this pledge of the ownership interest as collateral. Of course, it's now 2020. The bonds have not been paid. Investors want to be the new owners of Sitco. And you've got a new Venezuelan government that says, wait a minute. That transaction violated Venezuelan law. We don't have to honor it. So, Mark, I just want to clarify and simplify for my purposes. So, oh, no, what I'm being too complicated. So, what happens in 2016, as I understand what you just articulated, is you have this corrupt government, that of Nicolas Maduro, that needs money to stay in power. It doesn't have a lot of support, and in if I understood the news stories around the time correctly, it doesn't have the support of the legislature. Itself. That's right. But it needs to raise money. So it go, goes ahead and raises money, but nobody wants to lend to it. So it pledges the one asset that, the, that is generating money for the country. And that is this thing called PDVSA. It is oil company. Sit, and, yes, Sitco. It's the U.S. oil company the most important part of the state company. Okay, so it's the PDVSA owns something else that is uh, the money generators, this thing. Oh, it's the thing that is in Fenway Park. Yeah, exactly. That's right. 
the investors want to take that. Okay, so this is the somehow in 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 the the pledging of these crown jewels, something happens that implicates the governing law clause, and that's probably what you were going to come to. But sorry that's, for the interruption. No, no, no. I that's that is absolutely right. The the new government now says wait a minute, Venezuelan law said you needed legislative approval before you were going to do any of this, and you didn't get it. So that means we, the new representatives of the government, don't have to repay the loan. And a federal judge in New York is now being asked to decide whether the fact that this loan violated Venezuelan law means that the, the government doesn't have to pay it back. Sorry for being a little slow here. So when you say the new government, so 2016, Nicolas Maduro is in power. He uses the state assets to borrow money. Presumably there are investors in uh, London and New York and uh, all over the world who give him money on the condition that if he doesn't pay back, they get to take this, they get to take Citgo. That's right. Uh, which is located in uh, where where is it? Texas. Texas. Uh, okay, physical. so they, so that I assume that's rather important because stuff in Texas you can actually get a federal court to let you take, whereas if the stuff is in Caracas you can't get it. Very hard. That's All right. right. So then then you talked about a new government. So it's sort of Nicolas Maduro is still in power in Venezuela, but I assume you're talking about uh, the fact that. Mr. Trump and many other uh, governments around the world have now recognized a new government in Venezuela, even though they're not actually the government in Venezuela, and have said that's the real government in Venezuela. And this new government in Venezuela is saying, you, Mr. Maduro, did not have, did not legitimately pledge the assets of the people of Venezuela, and therefore, and this is a question, therefore something happens. So the, the, the new guys who are not, who are kind of new, but not really in power, don't want to pay these investors who lent money to the bad guys. To the bad guys. That's right. Basically, the dispute winds up being quite simple, at least from the perspective of the the newly recognized Venezuelan government. Corrupt government by some extra time, by violating its own law. Right? That shouldn't be enforced. The, that contract shouldn't be enforced. And the investors who hold that contract have a really simple response, which is that the contract has a governing law clause in it. That clause says New York law is going to govern any disputes related to the contract, and New York law doesn't care anything about whether the Venezuelan legislature has given approval here. New York says a contract it is a contract. You borrowed the money, you gotta pay. And so the question sort of nicely before the court in New York is, can you really just duck out of your own law just by sticking that one little clause in your contract, 
You agree that the law of New York is going to apply, and now Venezuelan law, including all the law that says what you do and don't have the power to do, that all disappears? That's the question. So as I understand it correctly, and to restate, investors lent money to Nicolas Maduro. And their position is, look, you in Venezuela, Mr. Maduro and cronies, you may have failed to... uh, dot your I's or cross your T's or get proper legislative approval. But that's not relevant because the governing law of the contract is the law of New York. And how do you really expect us important hedge fund managers in New York to know what the hell you did in Caracas? And we got expensive lawyers to tell us that the transaction was fine. And once again, it's governed by the law of New York. And so if it's governed by the law of New York, it's irrelevant what happens in Venezuela. Now, that doesn't seem to be what Mr. Guaido is saying. He seems to be saying it's highly relevant what happens in Venezuela. And you, the creditors, should have paid attention to the fact that you were lending to this corrupt administration that didn't bother to obtain legislative approval. And so irrelevant that the law, the contract says governed by the law of New York, the law of New York should look to the law of Venezuela. Is that sort of what we're talking about? So that the dispute really depends on whether or not the law of New York should look to the law of Venezuela or not? You know, so in a way, that's right. When you ask your students the question about their leases at the start of every contract, at the start of every contracts class. You know, the the leases have a governing law clause in it. From the perspective of a litigator, anytime there's a lawsuit that's filed in court, the court's first job is to figure out what law is going to be applied. There's not always a contract term that answers the question. Each court has a set of rules that will help it decide what law it needs to apply to a particular dispute. So I guess what I would say is that the, the dispute in Venezuela is whether the contract clause saying New York law applies completely trumps those rules, or whether New York's let's call them conflicts rules. New York's rules for figuring out which law apply might point to Venezuela, even though the parties seemed to prefer New York law, even though the contract seems not to allow that. So Mark, let let me, um, that was a very uh, clear uh, explanation. And you brought up this topic of conflicts laws that sounds really complicated. That, That was a class that, I uh, tried hard to avoid in law school and successfully did avoid it. And now you are bringing it up unnecessarily. So let us uh, try to avoid that topic uh, for the rest of uh, this series. Uh, But I suspect you won't allow me to do that. But now I I read some of the documents in this case that you were kind enough to share with me. And the lawyers seem to be making an argument that, Uh, goes one step beyond what you just articulated. So I'm interested in your perspective. So this seems to be, uh, and correct me if I'm being overly simplistic, this seems to be the argument that the 
creditors are making, the creditors who lent the money to PDVSA. Their argument is, look, there are two types of governing law clauses out there in the market when governments borrow. Type one says the contract is governed by the law of New York, or it might say governed by the law of England or law of Timbuktu. And type two says the contract is governed by the law of New York, except that matters of authorization and execution are governed by the domestic law of the Republic, or it might say matters of authorization and execution are governed by the domestic law of Venezuela. And the creditors go further and say, look, if our contract said that matters of authorization and execution are governed by the domestic law of Venezuela, then it would be fine for you to be saying that we should have known whether or not the legislature authorized this transaction. But we paid extra money. We paid you more to make sure that our contract did not say that so that we were more protected and in fact protected against your making these kinds of claims about conflicts, laws, all of a sudden sending you to Caracas and to hire some local Caracas lawyer to tell you whether or not the legislature would have would have approved this and what the local court says and all of that just unnecessary complication that you can imagine investors would hate. So investors say, we paid you more for this special language in the PDVSA bonds. And if we had paid you less, we would have gotten the crappy contract. We got this good contract provision that says only the law of New York. And under the law of New York, it's irrelevant what the court in Venezuela says. So that's sort of uh, QED, we win, uh, we get to go and take possession of Citgo uh, tomorrow. End of story. Why is that not the case? It seems to be a very clear and powerful argument that is based on the literal reading of the contract clause. Well, so it might or might not prove to be the case at the end of the day. But stop for a second and realize that the argument has to be wrong in at least some respects. It cannot be literally true. So first of all, the governing law clause in the discussion we've been having, we've been assuming it's enforceable as a contract, right? If it's not enforceable as a contract, the governing law clause can't very well tell us what law to apply. If you show up in court with some piece of paper that I've never seen before, but it bears my signature, which you forged, and it says New York law will apply, I'm sorry, me too, but I don't have to have New York law govern the question of whether that's a forgery or not. Understand my Wait, I don't understand. I, I, I have a so completely befuddled by your it's litigator a, speak. At, is, a, are you at a minimum, at a minimum, the New York court has to decide whether there is a governing law clause that is enforceable as a contract. And the governing law clause cannot tell it what law to apply in deciding those issues. The so, governing law clause matters only if it's enforceable as a contract. I don't even understand. This is why I didn't ever become a litigator. You're saying there might not even be a contract? 
So the investors gave the money to Venezuela and now Venezuela is saying there was no contract. You just gave it to us by mistake I or you saying, gave it to us out of your benevolence. There, there's a big difference here between whether there might be a contract and the question of what law decides whether there is a valid governing law clause. The answer to that question cannot be provided by the governing law clause. It is provided by, and here I'm going to use the word you didn't want me to use, the conflicts rules of New York. So that is unquestionable. What's more in dispute is whether New York's conflicts rules also look to Venezuelan law on some other kinds of questions that this interpretation by the creditors would suggest ought to be governed by New York law. Like questions of, was this contract authorized properly? That's a much harder question and the law there is nowhere near as clear as the investor's argument would make it seem. They may well be right at the end of the day, uh, but the, the answer to that question is not as straightforward as we see the words New York in the governing law clause. And so therefore we can stop thinking about the question. So if I understand you correctly, this contract question about whether or not the investors get to take Citgo is not as easily determined by just whether your governing law clause says governed by the law of New York or it says governed by the law of New York, except for authorization and execution, which will be governed by the law of the Republic of Venezuela. You are telling me that it is possible that those two differently worded clauses might actually end up being the same, depending on what New York decides the rules are for determining matters of authorization and execution. Am I in the ballpark? Yes, that sounds about right to me. And I don't think we can be 100% confident what the ultimate outcome is going to be. But there's a probability that a larger range of issues are going to be governed by Venezuelan law than one would think just looking at the contract. That may not help the Venezuelan government, the new Venezuelan government at the end of the day, but it's not as black and white as New York governs because the contract says so. The interesting thing in some respects, or at least one of the, the interesting things the judge is going to have to decide has to do with Me Too's point that investors hired all these fancy lawyers. They got them to tell that the investors that the bonds were legal under Venezuelan law. The Venezuelan government told them that the bonds were legal under Venezuelan law. So you can be sympathetic to an investor who says, what do you want me to do? Like I did as much research as I could. They told me it was legal. Now it's inconvenient to pay and they want to come in and say, oh no, no, you just didn't understand our law well enough. And because of that, we don't have to pay you back. That's the kind of argument that um, you know, puts a, a pressure on questions like this. And it's the kind of argument that New York law might very well wind up providing the answer to. Okay, bottom line, before we give you a break, 
are investors going to be able to get that oil refinery in Texas or no? Or do other things like politics come into play? <laughs> Okay, right. Well, who knows whether they can or not, but the primary thing keeping them from doing it is a set of U.S. government sanctions that were originally designed to hurt the Maduro government and then are now designed to protect key assets of the Guaido government. And the U.S. at present doesn't want Sitco to be seized, and so it's not going to be seized. If those sanctions go away, then yeah, probably the investors are going to get the get Sitgo. Okay, you're wiggling out of my question. One last question, ladies and gentlemen. Are the investors going to get Sitgo this week? Isn't litigations like the they aren't the court hearings? No, about- it got deferred it got deferred. Speaking of politics. So the the government which as you know, the U.S. government has been filing various papers on behalf of Venezuela in litigation elsewhere, but it took a pass on filing one in this case. It said to the judge, oh, we just couldn't possibly do it on time. We're real busy. Sorry. Um, The real subtext there presumably is the government wants Venezuela to win, but has a really hard time coming in and telling a judge that she should send these investors who bargained for collateral packing without getting repaid. Sadly, the, for them anyway, the judge called their bluff and said, that's okay. I'm happy to delay the hearing. I'll expect to hear from you by, and I think the new date is in September. So we'll see what happens in September, but it won't be that whatever happens, it isn't going to be this week. (laughs) Well, thank you so much that you've managed to uh, simplify and clarify what is a highly complex issue about one of the most basic clauses in every contract, the governing law clause, which our dear friend who also teaches at the University of North Carolina, John Coyle, keeps trying to tell us, since he is the leading expert on this particular clause anywhere, that we as lawyers do not pay sufficient attention to since it can sometimes, as in this case, be incredibly important. So uh, thank you very much, Mark. And uh, maybe now in our next segment, we can move on to some additional extraneous uh, matters that I am also puzzled about. That sounds lovely. Thank you. Me too. Mark, I know you're probably tired at this stage, having had to explain to us the intricacies of the Venezuelan dispute, but I have one last question having to do with another Latin American sovereign dispute that is ongoing right now. And this has to do with Ecuador. Now, the dispute, as I understand it, has to do with Ecuador's use of this technique called the exit amendment or exit consents. Basically, oversimplifying, Ecuador is using this technique to coerce a subset of creditors into accepting its deal. And the law on the use of exit consents, on the legality of whether or not you can coerce these creditors, differs in New York and England. In New York, you're allowed to do it. In England, you're not allowed to do it. Now, normally, 
the then next question would be, what does your governing law say? Does it say you're in New York or does it say you're in England? And if you're in New York, you can do it. If you're in England, you can't do it. But the Ecuadorian clause, as I see it, says both. The Ecuadorian clause seems to say the contract is governed by the law of New York unless you choose to arbitrate. And if you choose to arbitrate, you go to London and then a whole bunch of arbitration things are decided by the law of England. And so if I'm an investor and I don't like this exit consents, wouldn't I obviously choose the law of England? And then wouldn't I obviously win since the law of England would say that exit consents, this dastardly thing that Ecuador is trying to do are illegal. I see you shaking your head or looking at me with dismay that I have failed to understand something basic, but it seems rather simple to me. So this one is super complicated and weird. So we'll do it as quickly as, as any two humans reasonably should be able to do. The contract is governed by New York law, but has to be resolved by arbitration in England. So you have these two provisions that you're pointing out me to, but no, the choice of New York law governs substantive disputes under the contract. The provision you're looking to that talks about English law just is there so that we know what country's law governs the arbitration process. Won't have anything to do with the actual dispute. Thank you so much. I have tortured you far too much uh, today, but... You, have, you are generous as always, and I'm looking forward to, to participating in the next one of these two. All right. Until next week. Bye, me too. Bye, Liana. Bye, guys. Bye.